couple of years ago, I got a job as a chaplain at an Episcopal youth camp in McCall, Idaho. Since I had never lived anywhere other than Southern California and Hawaii, the, the location was well outside my comfort zone. And because of this, it sounded exciting, but at the same time, in the back of my head, was a source of anxiety. People often say that for faith to grow, you need to move outside your comfort zone which I think is true, but it can also make you feel lonely. Being a chaplain at a summer camp for kids was something I felt familiar with because I had worked with kids on the autism spectrum. That said, there were things I had to get used to. For starters, I had to get used to sleeping in a sleeping bag all the time there was no bed for plushy log cabins, the kind you might see on syrup labels or Westway's magazines. <laughs> there were, though, sleeping quarters that looked more like wooden sheds or shanties, but they had no lights, no heating, and no running water. I also had to get used to always carrying a flashlight night, and showering sometimes every other day, for there was often no time, and there were only two showers. On top of that, there were these very stinky stink bugs, <laughs> tenacious and blood-sucking mosquitoes, and dirt, lots of dirt. But McCall could at the same time take my breath away. There were conifer pines everywhere you looked, and an aquamarine-colored lake whose gurglings, when you heard them, sounded so pure and idyllic. Lurching upward in the background was an omnipresent and snow-ringed mountain that at times made me think of the Matterhorn at Disneyland, or a brooding but wise grandma. <clears throat> All of this was layered with the pervasive scent of pine that made me feel like I was treading the highest point on earth. As a chaplain at a youth camp, my job was to guide camp campers and their counselors through morning and afternoon prayer. There was usually a short sermon and some songs with lyrics that were theologically oriented. The best thing, though, was where the services were held, high on a mountain, in an open-air amphitheater, with three wooden crosses in the middle, kind of like the ones outside the windows behind me right now. Biblical scholar Warren Carter breaks down the passage of Jesus' transfiguration high on a mountain into three parts. First, there is the transfiguration. Second, God speaking. And third, the disciples' response. But I would like to add a fourth part, that is, 
that Jesus does not leave the disciples alone after Moses and Elijah vanish. <coughs> Regarding the transfiguration, Carter says we should be mindful of the connection to Moses, that Moses too went up the mountain on Sinai and became changed. Indeed, he did not know that the face of his skin shone because he was talking with God. Here now, at the top of this mountain, Jesus' own face is shining, and his clothes became dazzling white. These images, though, for some may seem a bit like fantasy, akin to curly Q cursive writing with the circles over the eyes. But today our culture seems to be investing a lot in images, whether that be in magazines, social media, or film. Are you guided by a particular image? Do you have a person in your head that you want to look and behave like? Maybe you have a superhero you'd like to emulate, like Batman, or Wonder Woman, or Iron Man, or Queen Ramonda. The context in this part of Matthew's Gospel is one in which the continuity of the story is fractured. Out of nowhere, we have Jesus' appearance completely changed, and nothing in the story foreshadows or predicts this. It just happens. And who do we see? We see Moses and Elijah, and then we see Jesus. But this isn't the regular old Jesus. This is the cosmic Jesus. The one whose face glows with a brightness like that of a heavenly star or planet. This is the Christ, similar to the one associated with John's Gospel. Only now he has temporarily relocated himself in Matthew. Jesus here is so visually stunning that you can imagine him radiating warmth and joy where it would seem impossible for anyone to feel depressed. High up on the mountain, we get the sense that he has the whole world under control, tied to his fingertips by invisible strings. For some, he may seem like a superhero above all superheroes. For others, and in particular, the believers in exile, as the late Bishop John Shelby Spahn used to say, this image is beside the point. Spahn says we should rather concentrate on the teachings of love that penetrate and move us beyond the Jesus as rescuer image and into a kind of here and now caring that is enhanced and made stronger by the Eucharist. But whichever way you view it, the point always seems to be coming back to love. Second, we have the cloud appearing. And out of the clouds, God's voice. 
At this point, I would like to pause. Because that's what I think should have happened. After seeing all this, you would think that Peter would have, had, would have been awestruck and so entranced and immobilized that you could have heard a pin drop. But alas, no, Peter starts talking about building dwellings for Moses and Elijah. Today, you might diagnose Peter's behavior as a disease to please, because it seems that he really wants to be seen as someone who respects the eternal, but also an apostle that does the right thing. But God's voice crosses out Peter's, eclipses it, calling it calling Jesus the Beloved, and that we should listen to him. And this we might describe as the imperative, the command, not announcing reason as the ultimate concern, but love. Jesus is the incarnation of love as the beloved. After that, what I imagine as a deafening silence occurs, where in the third part of the passage happens, the disciples' response. In this part, the disciples show the fear and trembling appropriate to God's closeness. They prostrate themselves. I sometimes wonder, though, how a God of love can be reconciled with a God we are supposed to fear. I wonder, though, if that seeing this as a problem might be connected with the traces of unbelief I still harbor about an unconditionally loving God that still loves me even when I'm doing things that do not enhance or express love. After all this, Jesus appears by himself, saying, Get up, do not be afraid. This exhortation to not be afraid leaves me with a few questions. Is love necessarily fearless and action-oriented? Or can a person be motivated by love and yet still be fearful? Maybe the kind of love Jesus shows is the love in all capitals, and that reconciles all contradictions. Last week, in Heather Lawrence's sermon, who was ordained a deacon yesterday, we heard a question we might ask ourselves before taking any action. And that was, is this thing that I'm about to do expressing the love Jesus was talking about. Indeed, if love truly is the meaning of life, then this would seem an appropriate question to ask before all actions. But the thing that always gets me with Jesus is that he never leaves us. The fourth part. He never abandons us. 
He shows us he's there even when we feel awful and unloved. At the camp one morning, I remember feeling homesick. It had been a year since I saw my family, friends, and the people at my church. The feelings then escalated into, you guessed it, a genuine, authentic, full-throttle pity party. A couple of hours later, I remember hiking up the mountain to get ready for morning prayer. When I got to the top of the mountain, I arranged all the materials I had for the day on a stone bench. And as I prayed mentally for help to, preserve, to persevere today, out of the blue, a huge deer emerged. It had been lying down behind one of the stone benches in the arena was now standing tall and majestic. The animal then stood there, motionless, gazing with their dark brown eyes into mine. In that moment, I knew Jesus was hearing my prayers. Through this large and beautiful animal that was now holding me and all my pain right where I was, Jesus was there. Then, then I knew I would never face any of my trials alone. That Jesus would be there with me, transfigured into whatever 